In this section, I'm going to discuss sociometry, which is a way to measure individuals' position within social groups and the impact of peer status. Sociometric or social measuring techniques come to psychology from sociology and they've actually become fairly pervasive. Sociometric techniques originated in the 40s and are currently used in psychological research and in applied settings. Sociometric techniques are used in many businesses to identify people who are important to the organization, who are viewed as highly valuable to organizations, people who are viewed as dispensable, people who are viewed as indispensable, people who may need remedial work. Unfortunately, the uses to which some businesses put sociometric techniques probably outstrip the reliability and validity of the techniques, but that topic is really more appropriate for another course. So what are sociometric techniques? These are ways of gathering data that enable researchers to characterize individuals in terms of their status relative to peers in a group of peers. And there are a number of different techniques that are used to assess social status and different intents for the research. Researchers may use measures of social preference. In social preference measures, researchers will typically ask members of a defined group, and a defined group might be um, a group of campers of the same age, a group of classmates in a middle school or a high school, um, or a group of Boy Scouts or members of some other youth organization. And individuals are typically asked to nominate one or a fixed number of people that they most prefer to play with, to talk with, to associate with, and one or some other fixed number of people that they least prefer to associate with. From these designations, researchers can identify children who are most liked uh, and rank them according to positive nominations, children who are least liked, that is, have the largest number of negative nominations. And they can also uh, determine which children are controversial. That is, they may be liked by a number of people and um, disliked by a number of people. 
social impact is a derived measure that includes the number of positive nominations plus the number of negative nominations. So a, a child or teen who is high in social impact is one who is hard to ignore, one whose peers notice the individual, whether they like what they see, whether they like the interactions, or dislike them. Researchers may separately ask for children or teens to indicate who in the group is most popular. That is, they are telling the researcher which children do they see as most popular. And uh, if you read the textbook, if you read papers in the field, you'll see that there's frequently a discrepancy between perceived popularity and um, perceived likability or social preference. So that an individual may both be perceived as most popular and have a large number of um, least preferred ratings. So researchers can construct a number of status categories, preferred, not preferred, or rejected, neglected, controversial, and average. Sociologists are more concerned with group functioning, how groups evolve over time, how roles within groups evolve over time. Psychologists who are using sociometric methods are typically more interested in identifying the psychological correlates of the different peer categories. That is, um, what are the personality traits, the behavioral traits, um, what's the attachment security of individuals in the different traits. Psychologists are in the different categories. Psychologists are often also interested in using childhood status to see how well it correlates with adolescent peer status and tracking the evolution of childhood and adolescent peer status with various aspects of adult adaptation with vocational adaptation are people able to find jobs commensurate with their abilities are they able to hold jobs in a steady fashion or do they have an uneven employment history do people go to college, complete college, etc. So psychologists are interested in factors that may predict and be associated with peer status and what factors in the future that peer status may predict. In general, researchers have found that children who are frequently chosen as preferred peers are more pro-social, more positively disposed emotionally, 
more physically attractive, more intelligent. Children who are frequently seen as popular <clears throat> are higher on aggression, higher on um, physical development, so they have advanced to uh, a higher stage of puberty than have their age peers, and they're more outgoing. The aggression takes different forms for males and females, with female aggression that's associated with perceived popularity typically being relational aggression in male aggression, including physical as well as relational aggression. So again, um, we're on slide 15. It's important to realize that being seen as popular by a number of peers is not the same as being liked by a number of peers. Teens who are frequently rated as popular are often seen as aggressive and unkind to others. Using relational aggression such as social exclusion, gossiping, spreading rumors about people, not inviting people to parties, and these techniques are used to maintain the individual's social prominence. This relationship between aggression and perceived popularity was noted a long time ago by uh, sociologists um, as early as the 40s and the 50s. But it really captured media attention in the 80s and the 90s and on a continuing basis so that we have a literature um, both scholarly and popular around the phenomenon of meanness on the part of high-status girls. So the, the queen bee syndrome among women is seen as an extension of the mean girl phenomenon among early adolescents and teenagers. Psychologists have been particularly interested in the relationship between social cognition and peer relationships. As a reminder, social cognition includes how we think about other people, how we analyze their behavior and attribute their behavior to specific causes, whether we decide that those causes lie in the dispositional traits or aspects of the individual that we see as relatively unchanging, or we attribute behavior to aspects of the environment which can change dramatically and fairly rapidly. Additionally, social cognition includes how we think about ourselves, how we perceive ourselves as really being, how we perceive what we believe we should be, how we um, idealize ourselves in terms of individuals 
and groups that we may include as references or standards for comparison. When we interact with other people, we have to continually interpret their behavior in terms of their intentions, in terms of their dispositions toward us. If someone that you know well and have a generally positive relationship with is suddenly curt and rude and says things that are hurtful, you have to figure out what's going on. And of course you can't just say, yo, what's up with this? You are treating me really badly and this is not how we've gotten along for the last five years we've known each other. Um, but most of us are not that direct. So we try to figure out, is the person in a bad mood? Are they feeling badly? Uh, Physically, did something terrible happen in their family life? Did something terrible happen in their academic life? Or are they angry at me because of something I've done? So we have to process the social information that we have about other people, interpret the cues that we get from them, the cues we get from our memory, the cues we get from the environment, and decide how we're going to respond when a situation seems to be problematic. Your longtime friend is treating you like an interloper, like someone they don't want to see, don't want to talk to. So you have to define your goal in your subsequent interactions and what you're going to do to achieve that goal. Um, your goal might be to show them that they can't get away with treating you like that um, and either cut off communication and the relationship or return their rudeness and aggression in kind or your goal may be to find out what's going on, what's causing this atypical behavior. You might not respond directly to the rude aggressive behavior and ask someone else who knows them what's up with our buddy. Um, or you might have the courage to ask them what's going on. So if your goal is to repair, restore, maintain the relationship, your response is going to be a different response than if your goal is payment in kind, is retribution. Making those kinds of judgments, making those kinds of interpretations requires the ability to take the perspective of other people. And that ability to take perspective improves over the course of adolescence. It begins improving um, in preschool years and typically improves fastest 
in children whose parents treat them with empathic understanding so that they acknowledge negative emotions in their children, discuss negative emotions, discuss negative behavior, and discuss alternative ways of responding to negative situations. Adolescents who are typically developing um, understand that their perspective on other people's experience is incomplete, is imperfect. But some adolescents have what's known as a hostile attributional bias. And this is particularly common in boys. And it's first evident early in childhood. Boys who frequently engage in reactive aggression, that is, they perceive someone as doing something that interferes with them, that harms or slights them in some way. They interpret the behavior as growing out of hostility toward them that the other person has and typically form hostile goals or goals of retribution rather than goals of disengagement or goals of understanding, repair, and restoration. Many teens at some point or another are victimized by bullying at the hands of other teens. The victims are typically seen by the perpetrators as different, as uh, belonging to a different group, whether it's a socioeconomic group or um, a religious group or a nerdy group. The victims are often individuals who are somewhat withdrawn, who are prone to being insecure and fearful, but virtually any teen can become the victim of bullying at the hands of someone else. Teens who fit the profile of being socially marginal, of being behaviorally inhibited, are more likely to continue to be victims of bullying. Children and teens who lack a network of friends that provide social and sometimes physical support are also more likely to continue to be the victims of bullying. Children who respond to bullying with distress are also more likely to continue to be the victims of bullying. Children and teens who are victimized typically blame themselves for being bullied. I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I'm clumsy. Rather than seeing bullying as a problem of the perpetrator. Um, when that happens, when the victim of bullying blames themselves rather than externalizing and saying, this guy is just an out-of-control jerk. They're more likely to become more anxious, more behaviorally inhibited, more reactive, more withdrawn, and are more likely to continue to be victimized. 
children who are chronic victims who don't have the support of reciprocated friendships are at high risk for long-term internalizing problems. Where bullying exists and is allowed to continue without adult intervention, without adult interference, it creates a, a very negative, insecure school climate. Uh, I don't imagine that situations like the following um, have stopped existing in some schools. Um, I have a friend uh, who's my age who grew up in New Brunswick and he said as a student at New Brunswick High School you to save your skin um, learned that you didn't drink any more than you absolutely had to and this is water and milk in the morning you did most of your liquid consumption in the afternoon. As long as you could stay out of the boys' bathrooms, you were unlikely to be bullied. You were unlikely to be beaten up. But if you had to go to the bathroom, uh, you were likely to be kicked, knocked down, stomped on um, by some of the more thuggish kids in the school. Um, hopefully, that isn't the case in New Brunswick High School anymore, but I'm sure that it is the case in some schools. There are now several cases uh, working their way through the courts in New Jersey. Um, one tragic case involves a, a boy who, in response to bullying that the school did not intervene, to stop, even though the boy reported it, even though his parents reported it, the young man committed suicide. Now, suicide is a very, very complicated topic, far too complicated um, to cover in any detail here. And it's seldom the case that there is a single identifying cause for suicide. There's rather a network of influences and a, a precipitating incident that exhausts the emotional resources of the individual and the only way they can think of that will stop the cascade of pain and distress um, is suicide. Um, another case involves a young man who was seriously bullied reported the incidents, his parents reported the incidents, um, and he was beaten up and uh, the last beating he received caused rupture of some internal organs, so he was very, very seriously injured, um, and his family is suing the school board. In yet another case, uh, this one in Newark, a teacher was threatened by a 13-year-old teacher. The boy got out of his seat. The teacher said, sit back down. Um, the boy said something like, shut the F up or I'll pop you. Um, pulled out his cell phone and said, I'm calling my homeboys. We're going to kill you. Um, the teacher reported it to
to the school authorities. The school authorities did nothing. He called the police. The school authorities sent the police home. Uh, and he was fired. The teacher was fired. He is suing the school system. And the young man is now 18 and being held in Essex County prison on charges of a very brutal murder. Uh, so this is a case in which uh, the bullying was directed at a teacher and the school did nothing about inappropriate, reactive, inappropriate, aggressive behavior. And perhaps this young man's developmental trajectory could have been interrupted, could have been redirected if the school had responded appropriately. There's a great deal of national attention now to issues of bullying. Um, Rutgers, as you all know, has been the focus of national attention because of the suicide two years ago of Tyler Clementi. It's, it's not clear that you could categorize the, the spying, the webcam spying went on as um, bullying. But that and the suicides of several high school students who were also gay, who had been bullied, um, has brought the issue of bullying of gay and lesbian students um, into national prominence. Uh, there are effective interventions to reduce bullying, and it, it really is important. Um, being socially isolated, being rejected, being bullied are not normal, healthy parts of growing up that everybody should just get used to. Uh, and there's a lot that parents and teachers can do to promote the development of uh, what psychologists typically call social competence, both in the, the shy, the withdrawn child or adolescent, the, the adolescent who may be marginalized because of sexual orientation or because they're in a distinct religious or ethnic minority within their school setting. Uh, it's, it's really a critical problem. Parents, teachers, school administrators can do a great deal to make the problem less severe. Programs to help children and adolescents develop pro-social skills, develop an altruistic mindset toward others, um, exist and are effective. Um, a faculty member here, Dr. Maurice Elias, um, has been active over a number of years in community education programs that um, can be very effective in developing what a few generations ago we called good character, but that is um, behavioral traits that emphasize self-control, empathy for the situation of others, cooperation, and ways to resolve conflict that don't involve 
humiliation, bullying, um, emotional or physical violence between children or teens and teens. And a fairly consistent feature of peer relationships among early adolescents, middle adolescents, um, and to a lesser extent late adolescents are cliques and crowds. Cliques are small groups of close friends. They originate in childhood social groupings. They're initially um, very homogenous. Uh, they'll be cliques of boys, cliques of girls. Um, cliques are usually small with five or six members, sometimes as few as three, um, sometimes as many as seven or eight, seldom more than that. They are fairly tight in early adolescence, um, looser in middle adolescence, and many researchers would argue that the purpose of cliques is social exclusion. It's less social identity. Um, I'm part of Susie's crowd, or I'm part of Sam's uh, posse, but more we're a group and you're not, and they're not. Click members give social support to each other, give emotional support to each other, and more than anything else, at least with cliques of girls, they talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Those who study sociometric status um, have found that though children and adolescents will typically say their clique does not have a leader, in fact, there typically is a socially dominant center to the group. Um, there are also frequently people in cliques that researchers would refer to as liaisons. That is, they may have friends in one or more additional cliques outside of the clique that they belong to. Individuals that researchers would identify as isolates are people who are not in a clique and have few friends. One of the papers that I posted in a new folder on peers um, dates from the 60s, I think, um, by sociologist uh, Dunphy. Um, and this is a study of cliques and crowds in Australia, in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and though the research is decades old at this point, I, I think that many of the findings, um, with an exception we'll get to, uh, are equally true today. He found that in the system that he studied, about 70% of boys and 80% of girls um, were in cliques. Um, he also found that cliques have um, a natural stage-like progression, um, which he didn't associate with specific ages because 
individuals mature at different rates. So some 13-year-old girls might be physically much more mature than other 13-year-old girls. Some 11-year-old girls might be physically more mature than some 13-year-olds, some 13-year-olds more mature than 15-year-olds. And what he found was that the first stage of adolescent cliques, uh, group members were highly homogenous. Uh, they were unisex groups, so boy cliques, girl cliques, and members in the clique tended to live close to each other and tended to be at the same relative stage of uh, pubertal development. Um, and importantly, the same stage of um, adolescent social development. Um, Dunphy saw cliques and crowds as being very important socializing influences for adolescents in which really the major role that they played was preparing adolescents for mature heterosexual roles. Uh, I suspect that that continues to be very much the case today and that further serves to heighten the, the difficulty that frequently exists for individuals with a same-sex orientation. If the evolutionary purpose of cliques and crowds is preparing people for adult heterosexuality, where does the gay or lesbian youth fit in? And, and the answer is um, not in any well-defined group. Okay, so in stage one, there are isolated um, unisexual cliques. And this corresponds to early adolescence, emerging out of childhood um, groups of friends. In stage two, um, cliques of boys and girls begin to associate with each other. And this is what Dunphy saw as the beginning of the crowd. Um, in stage three, crowds are in a transition. The unisexual cliques have higher status members who are typically the physically most developed uh, and attractive members of the clique and the higher status members of the unisexual clique begin to form a heterosexual clique. So in stage four, there are a number, where the number is relatively small, of heterosexual cliques in close association. So a crowd might consist of two to six cliques. Um, the crowd includes people who are buddies, but not closest friends. The crowd is a reservoir of people that you might invite to parties 
that if you need more people than are in your clique, you would include. Um, by stage five, which corresponds to late adolescence, the crowds begin to disintegrate as teens pair off into couples. Um, now, I mentioned that one particular aspect of um, the description of crowds and cliques that emerges from the research in the 60s, 70s, and to some extent the 80s has really changed. Sociologists saw the stage five uh, as couples pairing off and moving toward marriage. Well, marriage has changed. Um, marriage for college-educated individuals is typically a post-college event and increasingly a post-graduate study event. Um, if we go back to the 60s, women on average married in their early 20s. Today, women who marry, and that's an important distinction, on average are marrying at 25. So they're much more likely to be college educated. Women who don't go to college or who drop out of college are much less likely today to ever marry. They're fairly likely to have children, um, but as many media reports um, gleefully tell us, um, many working class, non-college educated women say they're not interested in marrying the father or fathers of their children because it would be like having another child to feed, another child to take care of. So there's some structural changes taking place in, in the economy and the society um, that are, are really fairly troubling. And, and this um, socialization process in high school um, is no longer serving quite the role that the earlier researchers saw it serving. Um, we may still be preparing people for heterosexual roles in cliques and crowds, but not necessarily for marriage. The diagram on slide 20 um, shows the structure the sociometric structure of a crowd. There are three cliques and a handful of isolates included in this diagram. Um, individuals F, G, and H um, serve as liaisons. That is, they are friendly with people in more than one click. Um, and the, the cliques are thus loosely coupled. Um, <clears throat> the social isolates claim individuals as friends, but the arrows connecting people aren't two-way arrows. So if you see um, in click number one, the arrow between A and B is a two-way arrow. They both claim each other as friends. The arrows between B and E are two-way, between A and C, between E and C, between D and C. 
but the arrows between A and E are unidirectional, between E and D, and between B and C. Um, but there's nonetheless a good bit of cohesion because most of the relationships are seen as reciprocal relationships. But the social isolates don't have reciprocated relationships. The liaisons um, also don't have, in this particular configuration, um, don't have reciprocated relationships but they are claimed as friends or see themselves as friends by people in multiple cliques. So crowds differ from cliques in being collections of cliques. Typically the cliques themselves vary in status uh, and there is a loose age segregation um, in crowds or age differentiation in crowds, with the highest crowds being made up of, on average, um, the oldest members. So the, I should probably say, the most mature members rather than chronologically the oldest. Um, a relatively high status clique in a medium status crowd um, may also be a relatively low status clique in a higher status crowd. So just as individuals may serve a liaison function between cliques, cliques may serve a liaison function between crowds. Membership in crowds is um, typically determined by a a complex uh, of features, um, appearance, activities, reputation, um, residential neighborhood, family wealth. Cliques and crowds have positive functions for individuals who are included in them, um, but they come with costs as well. And the primary cost is Conformity. To get into a clique, you have to conform to the norms of the clique. And you also have to be somewhat socially assertive. Um, but cliques and crowds give adolescents who are in the process of developing an individuated identity um, a social identity, a way to place themselves, to place others, to place themselves relative to others. Um, crowds seem to serve as the primary reference group for many adolescents and typically the high status leaders of the higher status cliques in a role are claimed as friends um, by many members of cliques within a crowd by many more members than the high status leaders um, themselves claim as friends. And the high status leaders are the ones that most clique members aspire to be like. Um, different schools will of course 
have somewhat different structures of crowds, but typical crowds includes the um, kids who are academic achievers with intellectual interests, the kids who are athletic achievers, uh, the kids who are from affluent or near affluent families who uh, pay a great deal of attention to uh, brand preference, car preference, shirt preference, jewelry preference, the drug abusing crowd, um, the skateboard crowd. Crowd structure is similar among ethnic minorities, uh, but again, the differentiating factors uh, will differ school to school. In uh, an exclusive private school with $40,000 a year tuition where students board uh, rather than live at home, the structure of cliques is going to be somewhat different than it is in a public school with 2,000, a public high school with 2,000 students who represent a wide variety of um, ethnic, racial, religious, and economic groups. Membership in a clique, in a crowd, can help encourage uh, academic achievement can help encourage uh, taking more rigorous courses if those are the norms of the clique. Membership in a clique or crowd uh, can also exert a number of negative influences. Um, a number of researchers have looked at um, the effect of clique membership on smoking. Um, on drinking, on other um, substance use activity. Um, for girls, click membership uh, can lead to rumination and co-rumination or chewing over problem situations and where the response to socio-emotional problems is continual discussion of the problems rather than implementing solutions to the problems or benign distractions from thinking about the problems. Typically the problems will get worse when people ruminate about them um, and even if the problem per se does not get worse, the individuals depression and anxiety about the problem tends to get worse when rumination, co-rumination is the primary coping strategy. Um, one of the papers that I posted is titled Everybody's Doing It Right um, and again it focuses on adolescents' beliefs about the prevalence of sexual activity in their neighborhood peer group and the effect that those beliefs about norms have on their own decision-making about sexual activity. Uh, membership in a deviant peer group can include uh, enticing people into delinquent activity 
Um, if it's not serious, if it involves truancy, minor vandalism, petty theft, and I don't mean to say these aren't serious, um, but if a kid who has not been oppositional, who has not been aggressive, is enticed into these kinds of offenses by a dominant leader in a clique, um, it's unlikely to lead to a life of crime. <laughs> However, where an individual who has been aggressive, who has been under controlled, who has been uninhibited since childhood, is in a group with other individuals with aggressive tendencies, with lack of inhibition. Um, membership in a deviant peer group is likely to lead not to status offenses and misdemeanor level offenses, but to serious criminal activity, assault, robbery, drug dealing, even murder. The peers who are most at risk from negative or the teens who are most at risk from negative peer influences are those who come from dysfunctional families. Families where there is a diffuse versus a cohesive family structure. Uh, where there is a diffuse family structure where parents don't play the role of loving, responsive authority figures, Children are likely to grow up with insecure attachments to caretakers, where parents are indifferent or indulgent, where parents or other relatives don't provide positive role models, where parents or caretakers don't monitor what their teens, their preteens are doing. Uh, where the standards are absent, the standards are inconsistent or are uh, enforced only in a very reactive and punitive way, those family factors increase a teen's risk for being susceptible to the influence of deviant peers. Um, the individual risk factors include those that I just mentioned being aggressive, being uninhibited since childhood, having a pattern of poor academic adjustment, uh, having a lower level of academic ability, um, a history of family substance abuse, parents who are absent or not in the picture, a parent who is in jail, um, particularly for um, a violent offense, all of these greatly increase the individual's risk. Negative peer influences sometimes have lifelong negative effects, but they don't always. Um, a higher socioeconomic status kid who gets involved with deviant peers and gets caught might not end up with a criminal record. The same behavior on the part of a lower socioeconomic status teen may result in a criminal record. What's the difference? Um, the more affluent, the more educated parents are much more likely to be able to advocate for their child, to hire 
um, competent legal counsel um, to argue for um, pre-trial um, intervention programs that may wipe out um, any record that would exist. So kids who don't have a record of bad behavior in childhood and only get involved in deviant behavior in adolescence are at lower risk for adult adjustment problems than are individuals who come into adolescence with a record of bad behavior, antisocial behavior, uninhibited behavior, aggressive behavior. The foundations of peer relationships are established in childhood. Attachment to parents, the internal working model of the self as lovable, of relationships as sources of satisfaction, as sources of emotional support and nurturance. The relationships that people have with siblings are early learning grounds for peer relationships. The social experiences, the peer experiences that individuals have in childhood, all of those are the foundation for peer relationships in adolescence. Um, it is not the case that someone who is rejected or neglected um, in terms of peer status in childhood is inevitably going to stay in those statuses in adolescence. And one of the um, papers that I posted uh, is titled From Nerd to Normal um, about the processes that can occur that significantly change an individual's social status and consequently or hand-in-hand hand, um, change individuals' conception of themselves. Ultimately, we want to develop with behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy. That is, to have internalized standards and values so that we can make decisions without being dependent on what other people say and we can feel good about ourselves without looking for the approval of others. That doesn't obviate the fact or eliminate the fact that we are fundamentally social beings. Um, ideally, we will have the moral courage to make the right choices when people around us are making wrong choices, to stand up for the right things when people around us are doing the wrong things. But ultimately, we need the experience of support, approval, love um, from other people. Um, we, we're never um, islands unto ourselves. We're never healthy long-term as islands unto ourselves. So peer relationships, which have their roots in infancy and childhood, are a particularly important vehicle for preparation for adulthood uh, through adolescent development. Um, but they continue to be important 
Um, as we enter into adulthood, as we mature through our adult years, um, we can't get along for very long without other people, or at least we can't get along very well. So peer relationships are pretty important in some of our most painful <laughs> peer experiences come from the adolescent years when a major concern for most of us is where do I fit?